So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And um, if I can, you can get me some pieces of paper, son, uh, just so big. Yeah, just for people to write on. Um, we're going to end the service with an exchange. We may not take a second offering, but we will do an exchange. How's that? Well, the title of my message today is Mutual Funds. A few weeks ago it was trust fund, now it's mutual funds. So if you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. I ask that it would be sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, revealing the thoughts and attitudes and the intentions of our heart, that, Lord, we would truly hear what your Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, have your way in our midst, in this place, in our lives. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Here's the context. Paul is calling the Corinthian church to give generously towards Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem church. And he wants them to have an offering prepared for pickup and delivery. There were no e-transfers, uh, no debit machines back then. Earlier in the letter, Paul uses the Macedonian church as a great example of a generous community. He says that while the Corinthians excel in other areas, faith, zeal, and knowledge, they, must, they have not yet cultivated a communal generosity the way the Macedonians have. And interestingly enough, the Macedonians were far more poorer than the Corinthians. So, taking verse 8, let's read that. God is able to make, and I'm going to emphasize the word all, all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work it seems that um, 
when it takes to creating a generous community, we must have an understanding of abundance. That's why I emphasize the word all. We need to understand that we have more than enough for our present placement. Abundance is framed into the lane of his calling. What do I mean by that? Well, Joseph in the Old Testament, when we talk about abundance, we find him in prison. So, what that means is abundance is not a palace on a hill somewhere for him. It is health, emotional well-being that allows you to be appointed over other prisoners. So for you and I, it's an understanding that God is, is, has given and is giving more than enough to bring kingdom influence where you and I are at in life. Did you understand me? The concept of abundance is meaning that you have more than, a life, more than enough to get through and to handle life and to bring kingdom influence wherever you go. And secondly, in verse 10, we have to understand the flow of God. And verse 10 is also a repeat from Isaiah 55, verse 10, that God will supply to you so that you can supply to others. Meaning, you and I are not a bank, we are a conduit. God supplies the corporate need of His people sufficiently so that they can share the needy among them. So, you need to understand that there is a battle going on for your participation. If there is doubt about the supply or the source, then it will cause an interruption of God's work through you. Let me say that again. There is a battle for your participation. When you watch TV, there is a battle going on for your participation. When you drive your car and there is a bulletin board that says you must buy this or do that in order to be successful and to be prosperous, it is a battle for your funds. It's a battle for your participation. And what happens is, in life today, there is the whole spirit of fear is attached to our finances. And when our source is in doubt, or it causes the supply to be in doubt, and therefore causes us to doubt what God can do in and through us. It will cause an interruption. Because what happens is, God first has to deal with that source of fear in order to get the funds through you. He has no problem getting the funds through you when it's a little boy on the pitcher that doesn't have enough to eat in a protruding stomach. 
It's a little harder when he doesn't look that way. And he looks like you and I. See, the issue is not about the place where the funds go. It's the source in which you have, you and I have, in order to give. Man, this is good preaching, even if I'm preaching to myself. We look at generosity as a matter of our earnings and wonder when we've accomplished being generous. We measure our generosity from our perceived lack, and we always justify a lack of participation. And we have excuses to poor stewardship. And then we don't say we aren't generous, we just pretend we can't be generous. Here's what we're asking. Do we just take more and more offerings? Do we just help more and more needs? Do we raise as much money as we possibly can? Have we suddenly become generous? Aren't we already generous? When is enough enough? If I give everything I have and so does everyone else, won't that neglect the other needs I have? Aren't we supposed to be good stewards? Aren't we supposed to give to those in need? Or are we supposed to save and invest? Or do these things work hand in hand somehow? Does generosity have limits? What about the power of communal generosity? Can I just give to someone else in my neighborhood? Or perhaps can I give to the telethon from the comfort of my home? Or can I sponsor a child from World Vision commercial? Can I donate to a time to a shelter? Is there really anything special about giving together? Isn't the church offering just a way to keep the lights on and the pastor fed? Or is it something else that's happening beneath the surface? Here's what I want, if there's anything that you, I want you to listen to, it's these next few minutes, and that's this. I want to cultivate this morning a spirit of abundance. Bill Johnson says this, when we realize what we have, we no longer live with the mentality that we need one more thing to happen to fulfill our purpose. When we realize what we have, we no longer live with the mentality that we need one more thing to happen to fulfill our purpose. Otherwise, if that's not the case, if I constantly see myself in need instead of fully supplied by what he's promised, I'll never lead people into the ways of the kingdom. I'll always be looking for help. If I constantly see myself in need instead of fully supplied by what he's promised, I'll never lead people into the ways of the kingdom. I'll always be the one looking for help. A mutual fund is a pool of money invested by a collective. A small team of professionals manage the fund and diversify its holdings. 
You see, humans have always known about the power and abundance that comes from putting our resources together. The Israelites were instructed by God to create just a society. They were given instructions on how to care for the poor, the priests, and the feasts. God wanted them to have a plan for all forms of giving, benevolence, honor, and professional refreshment, which is a form of giving to yourself. Then there were the followers of Jesus, quickly formed communities of worship, prayer, teaching throughout the Roman occupation, going beyond the unjust taxes of the Romans that the Romans required them to pay. They put much of their wealth together to provide for their own communities. Initially, they pooled everything together. And historically speaking, they would regularly take offerings during their worship gatherings to fulfill those same three forms of giving, benevolence, honor, and refreshment or relief. But just because you give doesn't mean you're generous. Just because you give doesn't mean you're generous. And God will, can do more than with a little giving in the right spirit than He can with much giving in the wrong spirit. We need to remember in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and then He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins and said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, gave all that she had to live on. God doesn't measure your generosity by the size of your gift. He measures it by the condition of your heart. Now, I want to say this, is that money and your heart kind of go hand in hand. The issue of abundance, the issue of wealth, is really all about our relationship with Him. It exposes us. It's an indicator. Now, we have a hard time understanding this, let alone accepting it, but God cares far more about the condition of our heart than the amount that's in your bank account. This is good preaching because there are some places in Christendom that preach your spirituality has a lot to do with either being poor or being rich. Poor is looked upon as being spiritual. Rich is being part of spirituality. And the, both of them are two ruts on the same road. But they're a rut nonetheless. Okay. I'm still going to get, I'm still, by the time you will be amening me, by the, I, I know it. I'm, I'm believing God for good things. Cultivating a generous spirit is the most important thing we can do, regardless of how much money we start with. I said to you in my first message in this series the most the, that when we're talking about trusting God with our money, I, you know the measure you are ready to love by the amount you can give cheerfully. 
But let's take this step, the thought one step further. A gift of a generous heart has transforming power. A gift with a generous heart has transforming power. If none of you believed that, then you didn't give. If you gave in the, in the offering to John yesterday, you were being a hypocrite. Because basically you gave because you believe in the transforming power of your money. Okay. <laughs> you gave because you believe in the transforming power of generosity. You believe that through your generosity, you can make a difference. When you are all of a sudden in need and all of a sudden there is, someone comes along and says, you know, the Lord told me to give you a hundred bucks. Yes, you are blessed by that, but the person who gave it all of a sudden won't, woohoo, I was listening. Man, my money made a change. <laughs> There's something that takes place when we are generous. The Macedonians understood this. They cultivated a spirit of generosity through the acts of communal giving. And Paul was calling the Corinthians to the same standard. Paul tells the Corinthians that God wants them to abound so that they can be more generous. And then he tells them that it's God's righteousness which compels him to look after the poor. And then he tells them that God will provide them with bread to eat and seeds to plant and this is their way. Their needs will be covered. And their giving will only lead to greater giving. That's the understanding is this is a conduit. Is that when we give, we, are, we receive. God knows what our needs are. He will meet those. But when we give, more is coming. I know you all believe that. I'm praying you believe that. God is calling us to a life of greater giving. And if that doesn't excite you, God is actually working on your heart before he'll ever touch your wallet. Yes, 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 that's true. This is how God defines good stewardship. A good steward is someone who's growing in a spirit of loving generosity and therefore can be trusted with bigger and bigger things to give. God's not going to bless you with a million dollars if you can't handle the money you have now. You guys are tough today. You have to understand that, that, that there is a principle here that if we, are with, if we are faithful in the little, we will be faithful in the much. Now, can I ask you all to, to reset your thinking about giving and generosity and start from afresh from a babe?
Because sometimes we look at this and go, you don't know where I've come from, Pastor. I've come from, man, the pastor used to get up and fleece us every week. We would get off, we get two sermons a Sunday, one during the offering or before the offering, and then the, re, and then the other one. It was like, man, if there wasn't enough money that came in, that, that was an excuse to do the, send the offering plate again. Because there was, a, there was this tendency to, to beat the sheep and make generosity take place out of guilt. And I'm not there, and I'm not trying to make that happen. But neither do I believe that God wants you in a total poverty spirit that says poverty is spirituality. Because I don't believe that he's creating us to be in wantedness without giving us the, the capacity to bring about change. Because it's, it's through our giving Give, and it will be given unto you. Press down, shaking. All those things are taking place. A good steward is someone who's growing in a spirit of loving generosity and therefore can be trusted with bigger and bigger things to give. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. If you have your Bibles or your phones, your iPads, I'm going to read this. And they said to these, Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, starting at verse 11. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave to them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to being called, and he, that he might know that they, be, that they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, my, my, your mina has made ten mina more. Ten minas more. And he said to them, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in little, you'll have authority over ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are, to, you are to be over five cities. And then the other came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, <coughs> I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank at my coming? I might have collected with interest." And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, has, more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That last line, it's harsh. I won't get into that. But I want to talk about stewardship. The first thing we have to remember about this parable, it is a parable. The parable of the sower isn't exactly, isn't actually about farming. The parable of the lost sheep isn't actually about herding. 
These stories speak to something greater than themselves. If taken on its face value, we can read that Jesus is giving us investing advice. If we get his riches program right, he gives us cities. If we get it wrong, he takes his money back from us. But in its context, this parable is about Israel. And whether or not they fulfilled their calling to be a blessing to all other nations of the world. We have to remember that just before this, Zacchaeus, we little man and the wee little man was he, climbed up into a sycamore tree, right? And Jesus said, I'm going to your house for tea. I know that, you know, at least if I do these old courses, you'll sing along with me. But you have to understand that Zacchaeus went away from that with Jesus and he was transformed. His money was to help the poor and for those that he, he rightly swindled, he paid back four times. Right after that, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and of all of Israel because they despised their king's de- visitation. This parable does not teach us that the rich are blessed by God and the poor are always bad stewards. Does not say that. Okay? So, this is what the Pharisees believed about money, though. Spoiler alert. They were wrong. Pharisees believed that you were rich. when you were rich, you were spiritual. Yeah. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a thief. But he decided that his wealth would be a blessing and it caused a spirit of repentance when he was with Jesus. And the redemption came upon his household. And the gift of making money is kind of like a gift of being a great painter. It's a skill some people have and it's a skill others can cultivate. But just as one person can paint beautiful things, another can paint grotesque and evil things. The both could be equally skilled. You can get rich through good and bad means. You can only be wealthy when you use your resources generously. Did you hear me? You can get rich through good or bad means. But you only can be truly wealthy when you use your resources to be generous. This generosity of the Spirit is the real risk these stewards were taking. They don't hoard the Master's treasure for themselves. They spread it out to the world. They know this Master wants His wealth to be put to good use. This doesn't really matter how much you have in God's eyes. The real question is what you're doing with it. What are we doing with what we have? Let's be practical for a moment. You will always have more money than someone else. And you will always have less money than someone else. You get to decide whether you see see yourself as poor or rich. You get to decide whether or not you will, you will live by a motivation of lack or obedience. 
lack, or abundance. Did you know that if you make $32,000 a year, which is $15.38 an hour, you are included in the richest 1% of the world. How do we change our mindset towards what we have? Do we just grit our teeth and give more in the offering plate? Well, maybe that wouldn't hurt. But it wouldn't be necessarily an ability to cultivate a spirit of generosity. This is why Paul refuses to demand anything from the Corinthians. He wants them to voluntarily change how they feel about their giving. He wants them to see themselves as rich people who are trying to make themselves poor. Don't believe me? Just go back a few verses. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is the true pattern of generosity. Because we have a wealthy attitude, we see we have abundance, we see what we have with abundance and thankfulness. Because we have a wealthy attitude, we are not trying to bankrupt ourselves the way Christ did. Sorry, we, because we have a wealthy attitude, we are trying to bankrupt ourselves the way Christ did. <coughs> Some people who have misunderstood Jesus have ended up in a weird prosperity gospel that stops shorts of Christ's pattern. Most people wouldn't want Jesus to teach their get-rich-quick investment classes because he kept giving everything away. What if the goal of, the, of a wealthy life is to die broke? Oh, now you're messing with me. But if Jesus did that, is that not the foundation of the kingdom? Everything is constructed upon God's loving generosity through Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor. On the Sermon on the Plain, he begins, blessed are the poor. When we are born into God's world, we start with nothing, spiritually, physically, financially. But we are blessed because in Christ we inherit everything. And as we are transformed by His love, we learn to love as He loved and give as He gives. For only Jesus, the wealthiest person in existence, ever truly died with absolutely nothing left. 
Even on a cross as he was dying, they bartered over his seamless garment. This expensive piece of clothing Jesus had received as a gift in fine taste, but in death Jesus even gives up the shirt on his back. That's how you know he was truly wealthy. Ouch. But what happens when we empty ourselves? Remember, faithful stewardship means an increasingly generous spirit. And in the parable, the result of the stewardship is ten cities. Why does the master give his servant cities? Well, when we give out a spirit of generosity, it's an aroma of worship. When we give out of a spirit of generosity, our gift carries its own atmosphere. When we give out of a spirit of generosity, the spirit on our gift changes the atmosphere of cities and cultures. It drives, and I'll tell you, it is experienced right here. Over the years that we have been in this particular place, culturally, I don't know about you, but I heard a joke once. You know how to drive, you know how copper wire was invented? A Mennonite fight, two Mennonites fighting over pennies. <laughs> it drives somewhat of a culture when there is a, a, a poverty mentality that there is not enough or that you are trying to save for the rainy day that is well off and you don't know when it's going to come, but you become this bank. And, and the funny thing is, is that I've heard is, you know what, I'm going to spend, I get I also heard this is that a lot of times older, we get all this money, only we're going to spend it because we don't want our children to have it. Because they got to learn how to get the money that I learned. You know what? I, I don't read that in the Bible. The Bible says that there's an inheritance, your money's to flow. It's supposed to long, last longer than you. It's supposed to flow from generation to generation to generation. It's our responsibility to teach our children how to handle money. And if you're not teaching them now, please do. Because I wish that, you know, there was a time when I was trying to understand this whole concept. I was thinking, how my wife, Barb was saying, Honey, we need to get in our own house. We need to get in our own house. I'm thinking, how am I going to afford that? In my mind, is thinking, that is the first. I, I'm living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. Then my spiritual dad, which you heard from him, he was standing here, said, Kendall, there's this thing. And I, a light came on. I didn't understand this. But there is a nesting instinct in women. They need to have a place to nest. Really? I thought that was only for birds. 
But it is true. There is, a, there is this innate thing in happening that when you're building a family and what God has created in women to have a nesting instinct, they need to have the place where they can start brooding. And I, that's a, that is such an ugly word for just wanting to just settle and to build a family. And he helped me. I was able to purchase my first home. But the, is, the issue is, is that sometimes we let the financial issues practically try to happen without any instruction or direction. And we wonder why our children have a difficult time handling money. And we perpetuate it because we weren't taught we don't teach. Church, may we never get think that way just because if we don't know, we need to know. Because when you get to the, all of a sudden when you get to the age 55, you start going, oh my, I only got 10 years left of working. Oh no, what am I going to do? The fear is you want to get in, you don't have enough to get something, and when you hit a certain age, you fear that you don't have enough to live. You can live in constant fear all your life, but the thing is, church, we have to be able to bring about the wisdom of God into our finances. $10 won't go as far as $10 million. But if you give away $10 with a cheerful heart, because it's all you have, then maybe you can cultivate the cheerness, cheerfulness required to give $10 million away. You see, God can do more with a gift even given generously, whether it's 10 bucks or $10 million, He can with whatever you begrudgingly pull out of your pocket. And if we cultivate a generous spirit together, a mutual fund, we can, be, we, can entrust, we can be entrusted with greater and greater amounts to give. I've seen it transform. Like now when I talked about the, the Mennonite mentality, I don't know if you heard me say this, but we took an offering a few, I don't know how many years ago, it must be at least eight to ten where we took a church, a Christmas offering for the pastors of this community. And almost all of them, except for myself, never had a pastoral honor gift for Christmas. And when they were given eight to $900 each from our church, Tears came to their eyes because of the honor that was given and the generosity that was shown. I had a, gener- I had a gentleman in this community, he's not here any longer, but he used to make fun of us being the Pentecostals because we, we had more money than what we need to do with. That's the mentality that he had 
serving at a Mennonite church, he felt that because there was such a understanding that you can't get any water out of grinding up a stone. There's just nothing there. But in a Pentecostal church, there's lots there. <laughs> so when you look at what we have to do between now and the end of the year, church, it's not a matter of trying to milk you. It's a matter of what is God doing in my heart that I could give that it will be given and it will create this culture of generosity that blows the doors off of this poor in spirit and poverty mentality. What if God didn't give you a dream of being rich, but rather gave you a dream of being wealthy? What would that look like? What's the most you're going to be able to give away before you die? If you dream of buying someone a house, do you cringe at the thought of giving that much money away? Maybe it's easy to dream about that kind of life without planning for it, but if you, do, if you do want to give a house away one day, then why do you cringe over giving smaller amounts? Are not the gifts given today only a stepping stone towards the gifts given tomorrow? We're not trying to build a rich Corinthian church. We're trying to build a generous Macedonian church. The goal isn't personal prosperity. The goal is communal abundance. Have you thought about investing in God's mutual funds? Taking that thought of God's dreams of what He can give through you is something that we need to stop for a moment and just end this morning with. Have you ever thought about what you'd like to give away? <laughs> 